over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. I want to do something before we jump into the book of Isaiah. I want to talk a little bit about a sidebar story. 1947, some Bedouins who think of a, even today in Israel, they're uh, temporary shacks that never move. They're shanties, like a shanty town. And if you drive into the Jerusalem city or Judean wilderness, you'll see shanty towns. There'll be uh, metal and plywood and tin roofs and a satellite dish. And these Bedouin communities are reclusive, and they are, for the most part, their children are shepherds, and shepherdesses, boys and girls, tend to sheep. And they're spotty all over the area. In the Judean wilderness, you will see them shepherding sheep. And erase the idea that sheep are these lovely, uh, beautiful white animals. They're stinky, they're smelly, they're stupid, they're disgusting. I mean, for God to call us his sheep is not a, a pretty metaphor. Uh, you're really stupid. That's what he's calling you. You're really stupid when he calls you a sheep. Uh, they've got to be led, groomed, guided, protected, sheared, fed, watered, because uh, they're defenseless, basically. And they're skittish. And they smell. Did I say they smell? They really smell. So we have this image of the Judean wilderness. We have the image of raggedy little children who are uh, shepherding sheep, and those sheep are nasty, and they can block a road as you're driving along in Israel. And you will see these Bedouins all over, and you watch the, the sheep enter in the desert. They're foraging for anything they can eat, almost like goats. You're, you're picturing green pastures. Uh-uh, ain't happening. Where these people are, are desert living for the most part. So the fact that they can live is, is quite an uh, uh, interesting study in and of itself. But 1947, some older shepherds along with little boys are in the uh, Judean wilderness, a little bit east of Jerusalem, near the Dead Sea. And they're shepherding sheep. And there are caves in that area, hundreds of them, large and small. And what do you do if you're a boy and you're bored and you're shepherding sheep is you pick up rocks. And there's an ample supply of rocks in Israel. And they're throwing rocks in a cave, we envision, and they hear a clunk. And so the adult in the group clambers up the side of this area in the Judean wilderness, and he finds these, these crocs. They've, they become known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And over 1947, and even ongoing digs, uh, over 900 manuscripts and fragments have been uncovered in the Dead Sea area. Uh, when you go to the area, there's an area called the Qumran community. And in the past, I've shown pictures of some of these things. But the Qumran community, it's got all sorts of lore about where these John the Baptist disciples who were like this Essene, ascetic community that lived in the wilderness, uh, probably they were scribes. They were, it was more like a scriptorium, a place where they copied the Bible. Thus, the discovery of all these fragments and scrolls around the Dead Sea area. Uh, if you're copying the Bible and you make a mistake on a parchment or a vellum or whatever material, you can't destroy it or erase it. You can't destroy it because it's the Word of God. 
and they're copying panel to panel, so they would roll it up and put it in a clay jar and put it in a, in a, a dark cave. That's what they did with them. Uh, the benefit of that would become insurmountable. So anyway, they find this clay pot, they find these scrolls, they don't know what they are. They end up in the hands of some Arabs, and they go back and forth in these antiquities experts to finally figure out what these things are. There's a professor by the name of Eliezer Suknik, Suknik, and they find their way into Suknik's hands, and he is the one actually who established the the Department of Archaeology at Hebrew University to this day. And uh, when he gets them, he understands what this discovery is. And just side sidebar, uh, when, when these kids found them, they didn't know what they were, and they were soft, and they were cutting them up and making liners for their sandals out of them. Think about this. So anyway, by the time Eliezer gets a hold of them, this is his own words. My hand shook as I started to unwrap them. I read a few sentences. It was written in beautiful biblical Hebrew. The language was like that of the Psalms. But the text was unknown to me. I looked and looked, and suddenly I had the feeling that I was privileged by destiny to gaze upon a Hebrew scroll which had not been read for more than 2,000 years. In 1948, they end up at St. Mark's Monastery, and the big find is called the Great uh, scroll of Isaiah, the great Isaiah scroll. Um, it was found in Qumran Cave 1. They named these caves. There are 11 primary caves. The parchment is 24 feet long, and it's about 10 to 10 and a half inches wide, and it's one continuous piece. And we can show you a picture of, uh, this is the shrine of the book. And when you go to Israel, we spend a, a, about half a day at the Hebrew Museum there in Jerusalem, and you see this. And uh, it's a, for those artists in the room, I wish you could spend a lot of time on this, but uh, if you were on the outside looking in, the top of it looks like the top of a clay pot. When you're on the inside, you're seeing the grooves that the potter would have begun with. And what is on the top of this thing? A scroll handle. So when you see Jews or pictures of Jews that have, they take out the Torah and it's in, a, in some type of felt and it's got the Shema on the outside of it and they, they parade it around. So what they did was they, uh, the artist who decided to curate this, how do we put this on display, did a beautiful job. So the Dead Sea Scroll was found in a clay crock. Obviously, this is enormous, but it was very small. But nevertheless, that illuminated part is the 24 foot in plus inches piece of parchment that's sewn together in panels. They don't have pages in a book. It's, it's panel to panel to panel. And of course, Hebrew, you read backwards compared to English. And um, this is a facsimile. This isn't the real one, but it's a facsimile. And if you can read Hebrew, which is, Isaiah is one of the most complicated Hebrew text in the Bible. But if you can read Hebrew, you can pick out characters and words. You can stand up there and look at it as long as you want. Um, and June of uh, 1954, um, someone put an ad uh, in the newspaper of all things in the Wall Street Journal. This is legit. And it reads, uh, four Dead Sea Scrolls, biblical manuscripts dating back to at least 200 B.C. are for sale. This would be an ideal gift for an educational or religious institution by an individual or group. Box F206 Wall Street. And you'll notice the Wall Street Journal was 10 cents in those days. It's a little more than that today. But this is a legitimate ad. And there's a guy who just happens to be reading it named Yigdal Yadin. 
Yigdal Yadin is the son of Professor um, uh, Eliezer Suknik. He knows what's going on here. So he arranges for an American middleman because there's always been conflict in the Middle East. He arranges for a middleman to purchase these scrolls, and these so-called scrolls uh, end up in the possession of Hebrew University. Um, the scrolls are excavated over a thousand, and they come in different. There's different names of calling them. The whole whole scroll is very, very rare. More fragments, pieces that are torn. And if you go online, you can search images till your eyes fall out of your head. But they put them in a big glass, and they have people that spend their, a lifetime. This has been going on since 1948, basically studying the Dead Sea There's volumes written on the importance of the Dead Sea Scroll. Why talk about this uh, for Isaiah? For Bible-believing scholars and people, this is like Yahtzee times 10,000 for a number of reasons. The most important reason was uh, prior to this, uh, liberal scholars attacked the book of Isaiah because of its complexity, because of the language, because of the organization, because it's a brilliant piece of literature that no one person could have written. So there were all these theories about multiple authors written over multiple time. There was attacks about its, its, its validity. Um, if you know the name Bart Ehrman, who's the current name, uh, who was trained at Moody Bible Institute in Wheaton, uh, he was at one time a, a brilliant man, is a brilliant man, a promoter of the Bible. He doesn't believe any of it. He spends his life attacking textual problems and passages. So that's gone on forever. And in that day, of course, we had the same issue. But this dates back to 250 to 150 BC. Why is this important? That means this was written a hundred years before Christ is born. It's the oldest manuscript we have. The Hebrew you have in your Old Testament is governed by a group called the Masoretes, the Masoretic Text. And the Masoretic Text is a very reliable text, but it's a thousand years later. So when they found this uh, Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah, um, as I often tell you, the archaeology does not confirm the Bible. The Bible confirms archaeology, if you're a believer. The, you're not going to find something that's going to call into question the Scripture. The, squish, the Scripture sheds light on archaeology. The reason we know these things is because the, the Word of God is the authority. At least that's my presupposition. You can take me to task, you may not agree. Gleason Archer is, uh, he's passed away with the Lord now, but a brilliant Old Testament scholar. He had the privilege of examining these in Cave 1 uh, scrolls. And he says, even though the two copies of Isaiah discovered in the Qumran cave near the Dead Sea in 47 were a thousand years earlier than the oldest dated manuscript previously known, they proved to be word-for-word word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. The 5% variation consisted chiefly of obvious slips of the pen or misspellings. So here's, a, and I had, was fortunate to have a Hebrew professor, Dr. Alan Ross, and he would not ever say this about himself, but he's probably one of, I'm going to guess, less than 100 people in the United States who can sight-read Isaiah. It's a very complicated Hebrew. I work at Hebrew. I'll never be able to teach Hebrew. I can speak enough words to get in trouble. Uh, but uh, these people that live in the Semitic language group, uh, are, are, they are otherworldly people. Uh, you know, the, the rest of us are peons. If you can read Hebrew and Aramaic, and I mean, you know, hats off to you. Um, it's, it's a very complicated language. So all of this pointing back to 
The Greek translation that we call the Septuagint, which is sort of a foul ball name, is dated about 250 years before Christ. We're going back. Ptolemy, under his time, uh, ruled from 285 to 246, and it could be argued that um, three centuries prior to Jesus' birth, we had a complete Bible, Old Testament. That's the importance of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And again, they will continue to be studied forever and ever. Now, why all that? Because we're jumping into Isaiah. Isaiah is the frontispiece to the prophets. We've moved from the poetic and wisdom literature now to the prophetic literature. And when we talk about a prophet, there are lots of words that come to our mind. We think about, a, the, in fact, the Bible uses a seer or a watchman or a man of God or a servant of the Lord or a prophet of the Lord. The word prophet uh, shows up about 300 times in the Old Testament. And sometimes we differentiate between foretelling and foretelling. If you go to a um, person that allegedly reads your palm, you're trying to find out the future. The prophet did not predict the future in the sense that uh, uh, someone would predict that, you know, you're going to meet a tall, dark, handsome, wealthy man. He's going to marry you and make you happy. Uh, you, that's not the kind of prophecy we're talking about. Well, think of prophecy at the most basic level of a voice of God to a people group or a person at one time and then layers of that that we understand going through time. So when we read these passages this morning, we're going to talk about, in a limited way, that audience, when they heard these words from the prophet Isaiah, words God had given him to pen, to say, to say in the pen, uh, that is God's word to a context. Now, it has layers of application. And the book of Isaiah is, in some respects, one of the most unusual books in the Bible because of all that it contains. In short, we could say the book is uh, twofold. It's condemnation because of man's sin and consolation because of God's grace. Condemnation because of his sin, consolation because of his grace. If you're an older believer, um, in fact, how many of you? Is Isaiah perhaps your favorite book? Just curious. A few. Um, I think it happens for older, more mature Christians, not that you're immature if you don't like it. It's a big book to tackle for anybody. And so I, for some reason, these passages mean more to us as we age. I think there's some reasons for that. Um, Wilkinson and Boa, I've talked to you many times about talk through the Bible. I want to read some compressed portions from their work. Isaiah, this pinnacle of prophets has a twofold message, condemnation and consolation. Isaiah analyzes the sins of Judah and pronounces God's judgment on the nation. He broadens the scope to include judgment on the surrounding nations. And this is interesting because there's an immediate, you know, we have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Remember, I, J, I before J in, the, in your alphabet, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. So this message is primarily to Judah, but it spills over to the nations that were irritating Israel and he, ironically, is also going to use to punish Israel for her sins. He broadens the scope to include judgment on the surrounding nations. He's going to judge them even though he allows them to discipline his own people. It moves to a universal judgment followed by a blessing. After a historical parenthesis concerning King Hezekiah, Isaiah consoles the people with a message of future salvation and restoration. Yahweh is the sovereign Savior who will rescue his people. Just keep in mind this condemnation, consolation. The people who are first hearing this book are all going to die before anything good happens. Talk about Christmas that never comes. 
There's some good news out there. You're not going to live to see it. So this turns up the heat a little bit on how we look at this book from a comforting standpoint. Isaiah, they continue, the Mount Everest of Hebrew prophecy. Now watch this, because I bet most of you have not seen this. Resembles the Bible in miniature. The first 39 chapters correspond to the 39 books of the Old Testament. And they stress the righteousness, holiness, and justice of God. The prophet announces judgment upon immoral and idolatrous people, beginning, uh, be, beginning with Judah, then Judah's neighboring nations, and finally the whole world. Surely there is cause to groan under God's chastening. So 39 chapters, 39 books. Now watch this. But the last 27 chapters correspond to the 27 books of the New Testament and portray God's glory, compassion, and undeserved favor. Messiah will come as Savior to bear a cross as sovereign to, and a sovereign to wear a crown. Therefore, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Now, canonization and Catholicism, and we have all sorts of different opinions about this. As Again, as a former Catholic, uh, when I left the Catholic Church, having to study what, what's the canon, and how do we determine the six, six books of the Bible? And this year I've been studying Luther and Augustine until I'm, I'm dizzy with this stuff. Um, the, I'm always a little bit leery of numbers. So when I read this, I went, that's, that's kind of cool, but it's kind of cheesy. But the more I started looking into the book, the more it is a very valid observation with some teeth in it. And I'm not, I'm not a guy that's going to follow my sword for numbers, but the parallels are pretty interesting. And a lot of scholars pick up on what these two guys observe. Gleason Archer again writes, what Beethoven is in the realm of music, what Shakespeare is in the realm of literature, what Spurgeon was among the Victorian preachers, that is Isaiah among the prophets. As a writer, he transcends all his prophet compeers, that's a companion, compeers, and it is fitting that the matchless contribution from his pen should stand as leader to the 17 prophetical books. Um, this is a warning, it's a caution for the reader when Isaiah's on the scene, this is not good news for God's people. But there's going to be something after their lifetime that's going to be not just good news, but life-changing news. For God's chosen people who are suffering in this ignobility of this time period. We've talked about the dark days of the judges. The book of Isaiah, what God intended ain't going to happen in your lifetime. You're never going to see this. God's going to punish and discipline you for your sins. He's going to use marauding nations around you, and He's also going to judge them if they don't understand who He is. Let me suggest this is not a comforting book in the way we would want comfort. In the way we would want comfort. It offers true comfort, but that comfort comes much later. Indeed, for some of us, we may only find it when we cross the threshold of this life to eternal life for now. The comfort must rest in the spiritual knowledge of Jesus with Him, in Him, following Him at His Word, no matter what worldly circumstances come our way. You and I live in a prosperous time. We live, um, the parallels are too easy to look at the division of the United States and get all knotted up about that and we go searching the Bible to explain things. We have to be careful when we take things out of context and apply them, you know, pell-mell to the way we want things to be. 
But the big lesson, if we step back, we're still on good terra firma, is that this nation is going to be judged horrifically for her sin. But ultimately, God provides a solution. Uh, you and I may live in a time where there's health, relationship, finances, pick, take your poison, so to speak. Um, maybe you're blessed and you got a great family and everything's you know, working out. Good for you and keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything about it. I've had friends, you know, God's been very kind to me. Good. Praise God. Don't pat yourself on the back. Just be humble and grateful. But when, more likely, not if, you go through those challenges, the story of Isaiah is not just individuals, but a whole nation of people are going to be disciplined. And it will be generations before this promised Messiah will come through them. Um, I don't have this on a slide, but I want to read just a brief portion of Isaiah 66, verse uh, 2, um, when Cindy and I had our 30th um, wedding anniversary. I didn't wear it today. Um, we had wedding bands made in Israel, and I have a friend over there that makes jewelry, and um, he made us these rings, and we got to pick the Hebrew inscription that they, he carved on the outside of them. And uh, I mean, most people, you know, pick stock and trade, you know, Rose of Sharon, or this is my beloved, my beloved, things like that. And so uh, I went to this friend and I said, I I'm picking out a verse you've never put on a ring. And he went like, right. And I, I wrote it in Hebrew and he looked at me and he goes, did you write that correctly? And so I opened to Isaiah 66 and I read him uh, verse 2, the last, the last strophe of verse 2, Isaiah 66 verse 2. But to this one I will look to him, him who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. And I wrote this in the front of all my Bibles. M-J-E, my initials, do you tremble at his word? And this isn't a you know, cheery Michael Easy sermon. This is life. The Dead Sea Scrolls is a nice exclamation point on what the Bible already tells us. But it may not work the way you want. And that's fine. He's still sovereign. He still provides a comfort. And that comfort is otherworldly. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. It's by faith. It's walking with him. It's submitting to his word. It's understanding who he is from how he's revealed himself in scripture, period. Your experiences in mind rarely are going to line up the way we like. Now, if they do, God bless you and keep your mouth shut. Enjoy it. And spread the joy as best you can. But when the hurt and harm comes. This message is really the message of the gospel in the book of Isaiah. It's going to be through suffering Jesus Christ will be glorified. He uses that explanation all the way through the gospel of John. He cannot go through to glory until he suffers adequately for your sins and mine. The suffering servant is often, uh, in one of the chapters, 53, it's called the suffering servant. Well, there's lots of ways we could tackle Isaiah, and, and we could try to, to approach it. And I have, for several weeks now, banged my head against my desk metaphorically going, okay, how do I help uh, you and me get my arms around this, as opposed to just going through dates and times? Um, one of the ways we could begin would be to look at how many times the New Testament quotes Isaiah, more than any other prophet. Another way would be to look at certain phrases like, in that day, in that day, in that day, in that day. It's a real easy search. You can line them all up, you BSF precept Bible nerds. You can line them all up till you're dizzy in that day, in that day, and start making comparisons and contrast. Um, the story of Hezekiah in and of itself 
and Sennacherib. Remarkable stories. And again, if you've been to the, if you travel to London as part of your job, life, career, vacation, you must go to the British Museum of History and you must go to see the Sennacherib tablets. The Kenyans, if I remember correctly, the Kenyans basically um, stole antiquities from all around the world and took them to the British Museum. That's what they did. That's how they have all the mummies. They stole them from Egypt and shipped them back to the UK. And you will find the Sennacherib tablets. The Sennacherib tablets are pictographs that tell the story of what Sennacherib, the Assyrians, did to the Jew, taking them into exile, even down to hooks in their jaw. It's like finding the other guy's crib sheet on what they did to Israel as a people. It's real. The whole story of Hezekiah is recorded here. The story of uh, Sennacherib is recorded here. And you can go to the British Museum of History and see how the Bible confirms the archaeology. This book is uh, insurmountable in some ways. Or we could start with Messianic prophecies, which at this time of year is very attractive. Let's look at two passages we know too well. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Let me have you read with me. Will you read this with me? Therefore the Lord Himself... Child is the operative motif. Child. Now read chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us. So we have Christmas and Isaiah. We have this child motif taught through chapters 6, 7, and 8, and 9 of Isaiah. Let me make five quick observations about these passages. Number one, he's born a child. Um, that child motif is this, you know, this firstborn, this one and only, John 3.16, monogenes, one and only, the only Son of God, eternally existent in the Father, but yet he becomes incarnate at, at the birth and marries the mother. Holy Spirit is, we would say, the Father, quote-unquote. Uh, secondly, He will rule over His people. So again, put yourself in Israel's shoes, hearing this prophecy, the Messiah is going to rule. He's going to be the government. Cindy and I have been in the political interest realm since 93 when we moved from Texas to Washington, D.C. and Northern Virginia. I still remember moving there and a friend of ours saying, are you political? And I said, no, nah, we don't care about politics. And she said, you will be. And we were. That's like living in Nashville and not being in the music city. You're going to start listening to music and going to... My playlists are completely different uh, from 10 years ago when we first moved to Nashville. I'm listening to music I would never have listened to had I not moved to Nashville. So you become you know, sort of acclimated to that environment. Uh, when they heard this, that Messiah was going to be a government ruler. And we used to warn and caution and urge Christians in the D.C. area, you're not electing a Messiah. The, the man or woman who sits in the White House is not Jesus. You don't wrap the cross in an American flag. And as much as I love my country, and I bleed red, white, and blue, Christ is primary. Christ is foremost. Christ is the government. 
and it will rest on his shoulders. It'll be nothing for him to bear is the image we get. Third, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Each is worth a long message. Um, each one of those, I just want to make one caveat. The idea of counselor has a nomenclature here. I'm going to see a counselor like a therapist. That's not what this is talking about. This is more of a war counselor or those who advise the king. The nations wage counsel against God, evil counsel. And what we hear about this Messiah is that he is wonderful. He's smarter than anybody. You know, and look at some of the times Jesus tripped up the scribes and Pharisees, you know, whose image is on that coin? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, you know? And then you got to see him walking and we go, who thought of that dumb question anyway? You know, they, they couldn't trap him no matter what they tried. He's wonderful in his counsel. Um, Prince of Peace, he will come as a warrior for a short time, but then he will be the Prince of Peace, the peace that belongs to him. Um, we could look at the fourth observation, the eternal Davidic throne. And as I mentioned when we went through 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 7 verses 13 and following should be marked in your Bible. Because this promise from God is the eternal Davidic kingdom. Not the Saul kingdom. Saul was a failure as a king. This is God's choice, Davidic. And there will never lack a king on the messianic throne because he's the eternal king. And so here we have the eternal Davidic throne. And finally, the zeal of the Lord. That's one of those words I doubt you use. Maybe you said zealous. Maybe you read it somewhere, but you don't say, uh, I have zeal today to go to Cracker Barrel. You know, you know, it's not a word you use much. Um, it really means jealous. And Old Testament language for jealousy is not like I'm jealous when you're a teenager of a girl or a boy or a friend, or I'm jealous that I wasn't invited to that thing. Uh, jealous is more of a, a righteous position of his justice. No, I'm jealous for the right thing. I'm jealous that it's done the right way. It's the zeal of God, the right way of doing it, his way. That's what he's jealous for, if that makes sense. Um, and then, of course, we could end the book looking at Isaiah 53, which would not be a bad way to end it, the so-called suffering servant. The first time I ever heard this taught, I was in a church in Houston, Texas, um, and the pastor there called this the rabbi's torture chamber. And uh, if you study some Jewish literature on Isaiah 53, uh, you might find things like this is the way God looks at his people and how his people were treated and misabused. So they, they nationalized the personal parts of Isaiah 53. I won't read the entire thing. Who has believed our message? Who, to whom has the arm strength of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. So you can say that sounds like Israel, right? out of the root of the ground, the parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. One of my um, longtime friends in Israel, uh, Ronnie Cohen, who's one of the guides I use, uh, he believes Jesus was a very short man, dark-complected, um, more olive and, and Middle Eastern than this tall image we have of Jesus. And, you know, no one knows for sure, but I, I find that interesting. Uh, he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, 
Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. The soldier's sword pierced in the side. He was crushed for our iniquities, body broken. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, he scourged before he's crucified. We are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb led to slaughter. And his back and forth with Pilate and Herod. At one point, he didn't, he didn't answer the questions. He doesn't resist the crucifixion. He could have stopped it. How many songs have been written about it? He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have said, no, I'm not going to do this. He did not open his mouth. And like a sheep that is silent before it shears. What does John say in John 1.29? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sheep message is all the way through. The shepherd will come, not only as the shepherd, but as the sheep, as the paschal lamb. In the Passover, Exodus 12, this is the shepherd. No, this is the sheep that we sacrifice. We bleed his throat. We put it on the doorpost and lentils. And the angel passes over because of the paschal lamb. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered? He was cut off from the land of living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. His grave was the sign of wicked men, thieves on either side. On and on you can go. It's pretty hard to say this is not an allusion to Christ. Now, could it have had application at the time of Isaiah for the nation of Israel? I think that's a really big stretch, contextually and from a literature standpoint. But for argument's sake, let's say so. Does it seem to line up with who this Jesus is? I don't have a ton of Jewish friends. I have a number who've come to Christ. Sometimes they call themselves Messianic Jews. And this chapter was a watershed for them, along with Psalm 22. They'd never seen it before. Why are you going to teach this in a synagogue? So, Isaiah, we've got the birth of Jesus, and we've got the crucifixion in one book, 700 years before he's born. Pretty remarkable. And the literary components that mirror in to these centers, if you will, are unparalleled. Um, lots of ways we can talk about this in a landing spot. I got a uh, message from my friend Johnny Erickson Tata, and um, she was on travel recently, and travel is very arduous for her. And she is in, uh, if, if you know Johnny, uh, you can pray for her. She is declining. And um, God may keep her around many years, but it could be today. She's declining. And we're all sad, but we're uh, joyful that one day she will dance and walk and run in the kingdom of God. But to lose her work and witness and testimony, the millions of people that have come to Christ through her ministry is remarkable. But um, we have a small prayer group, and she wrote to us um, in a private message about her travels. And she says, um, she's in bad shape. And she says, but getting ready for Thanksgiving, I wanted to share with you a thought that was repeated on Johnny and Friends radio broadcast recently. Isaiah 48, 10 to 11 God says to you, if you are suffering any affliction, see, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake. 
sidebar, he forgives your sin for his namesake, not for you. I'll never get over that when I read that in the Psalms or Isaiah. He forgives your sin for his namesake, not for you. It's his reputation on the line. It's his testimony. It's his life. He forgives your sin and mine for his name. She continues, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Then she says, stop and think about that. God is saying that he is testing you in the furnace of affliction for his own sake. And he says it twice to reinforce the idea, she writes. What does that mean? In ways beyond our ability to understand, God has his own great name at stake in your suffering. Some of you are really hurting. It's been a hard year. You've lost. You're sad. Changes have transpired. Things didn't work out the way you wanted. You're in between. And how you and I approach that suffering is the difference of a believer and someone who has no hope. And we started today with hope. And my hope is that I can endure this life with joy and courage and decision and cheer, even though my circumstances rarely align. When they do, great. Yahtzee, when they do, great. Enjoy the moment. But it's bleeding, is it not? Because the way you respond to suffering, the way you react, isn't so much for your benefit. Isaiah is telling us there's something bigger going on, something greater and more glorious. God's own good name is on the line. When God allows disease or disability in the life of one of his children, when he tests us with the furnace of affliction, he has in mind to make himself look good through the way you respond and continue to trust him. You may not like the way she says it, I love it. The way you and I respond reflects on what we believe. In him, trusting him, believing in him, resting in him, even though my circumstances want to tell me otherwise. When you and I are, um, he, he is, excuse me, he is banking that you are not tarnishing his good reputation, but make it shine. When you and I are in the heat of the fiery trial, when we have cherished opportunity, one will never, uh, one will never have an eternity to make God look great. If we would but engage the Holy Spirit and ask for His enabling, persevering help, you, uh, you and I have our pain, in our pain, a magnificent prospect. We are precious here and now only by chance to turn up the wattage on God's glory. I realize I won't make the pain go away. But it should help us remember that our trials are never random, haphazard, or arbitrary. There's a cosmic purpose behind your pain that can help you become more than a conqueror. The way you lean on God through dark times will be told and retold throughout countless ages. You visit an assisted living home or a hospital lately, there's two kinds of patients. There's complainers and people that are hopeful. There's whiners and there's people that smile. And by golly, I want to be one that smiles at the future. If I should live so long that you have to come see me, I really hope I don't. I'm selfish. I'm going to go to heaven. But if I should live so long, I hope I'm not an ornery, grumpy old man. And when you go to those rest homes and assisted living and hospice watches, rare is the man or woman who smiles. And when they do, that's otherworldly. 
That's not positive motivation. That's not a Dale Carnegie course or Tommy Robert, whatever the name is, course. The story of God's grace to sustain and how you held fast to your Savior, that's the story that will be far into eternity and for us will be only a distant memory. So when, in your painful condition, pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Remember, you can honor, bless, and celebrate his name here on earth among the many bright angels in heaven by trusting in your Savior. You can do all this because he is with you in the furnace of your affliction. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, Isaiah says, because we're discomforted. It's hard. It's sad. Sometimes life doesn't work real well. A super cheery Michael Easy sermon, but one that could not be more true. If we anesthetize and dull our pain with activity and substances and distractions, I'm not saying that's bad, but the pain resides. The pain remains. The distraction can't be sustained. What can be sustained? Trusting in Him, resting in Him, hoping in Him, believing in Him, even when it's hard. That's real salvation. That's true salvation. Michael in Context is fully funded by our listeners. Would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Cates.